Welcome to the 30th reading of the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 14, Section 13. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 13. If these things are so, it is certain that our works cannot in themselves make us agreeable and acceptable to God, and even cannot please God, except insofar as being covered with the righteousness of Christ, we thereby please him and obtain forgiveness of sins. God has not promised life as the reward of certain works, but only declares, quote, which if a man do, he shall live in them, unquote. Leviticus 18, verse 5, denouncing the well-known curse against all who do not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. In this way is completely refuted the fiction of a partial righteousness, the only righteousness acknowledged in heaven being the perfect observance of the law. There is nothing more solid in their dogma of compensation by means of works of supererogation. For must they not always return to the proposition, which has always been disproved, viz., that he who observes the law in part is so far justified by works? This, which no man of sound judgment will concede to them, they are not ashamed to take for granted. The Lord, having so often declared that he recognizes no justification by works, unless they be works by which the law is perfectly fulfilled, how perverse is it? while we are devoid of such works, to endeavor to secure some ground of glorying to ourselves, that is, not to yield it entirely to God by boasting of some kind of fragments of works and trying to supply the deficiency by other satisfactions. Satisfactions have already been so completely disposed of that we ought never again even to dream of them. Here all I say is that those who thus trifle with sin do not at all consider how execrable it is in the sight of God. If they did, they would assuredly understand that all the righteousness of men collected into one heap would be inadequate to compensate for a single sin. For we see that by one sin man was so cast off and forsaken by God that he at the same time lost all power of recovering salvation. He was, therefore, deprived of the power of giving satisfaction. Those who flatter themselves with this idea will never satisfy God, who cannot possibly accept or be pleased with anything that proceeds from his enemies. But all to whom he imputes sin are enemies, and therefore our sins must be covered and forgiven before the Lord has respect to any of our works. From this it follows that the forgiveness of sins is gratuitous, and this forgiveness is wickedly insulted by those who introduce the idea of satisfaction. Let us therefore, after the example of the Apostle, quote, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, unquote, 
quote, press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ, unquote. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Section 14. How can boasting in works of supererogation agree with the command given to us? Quote, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Unquote. Luke 17, verse 10. To say, or speak in the presence of God is not to feign or lie, but to declare what we hold as certain. Our Lord, therefore, enjoins us sincerely to feel and consider with ourselves that we do not perform gratuitous duties, but pay him service which is due. And truly, for the obligations of service under which we lie are so numerous that we cannot discharge them, though all our thoughts and members were devoted to the observance of the law. And therefore, when he says, quote, When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, unquote, it is just as if he had said that all the righteousness of men would not amount to one of these things. Seeing then that every one is very far distant from that goal, how can we presume to boast of having accumulated more than is due? It cannot be objected that a person, though failing in some measure in what is necessary, may yet in intention go beyond what is necessary. For it must ever be held that in whatever pertains to the worship of God or to charity, nothing can ever be thought of that is not comprehended under the law. But if it is part of the law, let us not boast of voluntary liberality in matters of necessary obligation. Section 15. On this subject, they causelessly allege the boast of Paul, that among the Corinthians he spontaneously renounced a right which, if he had otherwise chosen, he might have exercised. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15. Thus not only paying what he owed them in duty, but gratuitously bestowing upon them more than duty required. They ought to have attended to the reason there expressed, that his object was to avoid giving offense to the weak. For wicked and deceitful workmen employed this pretense of kindness, that they might procure favor to their pernicious dogmas, and excite hatred against the gospel, so that it was necessary for Paul either to peril the doctrine of Christ, or to thwart their schemes. Now, if it is a matter of indifference to a Christian man whether or not he cause a scandal when it is in his power to avoid it, then I admit that the apostle performed a work of supererogation to his master. But if the thing which he did was justly required in a prudent minister of the gospel, then I say he did what he was bound to do. In short, even when no such reason appears, yet the saying of Chrysostom is always true, that everything which we have is held on the same condition as the private property of slaves. It is always due to our master. Christ does not disguise this in the parable, for he asks in regard to the master who, on return from his labor, requires a servant to gird himself and serve him, quote, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I trow not, unquote. Luke 17, verse 9. But possibly the servant was more industrious than the master would have ventured to exact. Be it so, still he did nothing to which his condition as a servant did not bind him, because his utmost ability is his master's. I say nothing as to the kind of supererogations on which these men would plume themselves before God. They are frivolities which he never commanded, which he approves not, and will not accept when they come to give in their account. The only sense in which we admit works of supererogation is that expressed by the prophet, when he says, quote, Who hath required this at your hand? End quote. Isaiah 1, verse 12. But let them remember what is elsewhere said of them, quote, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Unquote. Isaiah 55, verse 2. 
It is indeed an easy matter for these indolent ravens to carry on such discussions sitting in their soft chairs under the shade. But when the Supreme Judge shall sit on his tribunal, all these blustering dogmas will behove to disappear. This, this I say, was the true question. Not what we can fable and talk in schools and corners, but what ground of defense we can produce at his judgment seat. Section 16. In this matter, the minds of men must be specially guarded against two pestiferous dogmas. These, against putting any confidence in the righteousness of works, are ascribing any glory to them. From all such confidence, the scriptures uniformly dissuade us when they declare that our righteousness is offensive in the sight of God unless it derives a sweet odor from the purity of Christ, that it can have no other effect than to excite the divine vengeance unless sustained by his indulgent mercy. Accordingly, the only thing they leave to us is to deprecate our judge with that confession of David, quote, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no living be justified. Psalm 143, verse 2. And when Job says, quote, If I be wicked, woe unto me, and if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head, unquote. Job 10, verse 15. Although he refers to that spotless righteousness of God, before which even angels are not clean, he, however, shows that when brought to the bar of God, all that mortals can do is to stand dumb. He does not merely mean that he chooses rather to give away spontaneously than to risk a contest with the divine severity, but that he was not conscious of possessing any righteousness that would not fall the very first moment it was brought into the presence of God. Confidence being banished, all glorying must necessarily cease. For who can attribute any merit of righteousness to works, which instead of giving confidence, only make us tremble in the presence of God? We must, therefore, come to what Isaiah invites us, quote, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory, unquote. Isaiah 45, verse 25. For it is most true, as he elsewhere says, that we are, quote, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified, unquote. Isaiah 61, verse 3. Our soul, therefore, will not be duly purified until it ceases to have any confidence or feel any exultation in works. Foolish men are puffed up to this false and lying confidence by the erroneous idea that the cause of their salvation is in works. Section 17. But if we attend to the four kinds of causes which philosophers bring under our view in regard to effects, we shall find that not one of them is applicable to works as a cause of salvation. The efficient cause of our eternal salvation the Scripture uniformly proclaims to be the mercy and free love of the Heavenly Father towards us the material cause to be Christ, with the obedience by which he purchased righteousness for us. And what can the formal or instrumental cause be but faith? John includes the three in one sentence when he says, quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, unquote. John 3, verse 16. The apostle, moreover, declares that the final cause is the demonstration of the divine righteousness and the praise of his goodness. There also he distinctly mentions the other three causes, for he thus speaks to the Romans, quote, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, unquote. Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. You have here the head and primary source. God has embraced us with free mercy. The next words are, quote, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, unquote. This is, as it were, the material cause by which righteousness is procured for us, quote, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith, unquote. 
Faith is thus the instrumental cause by which righteousness is applied to us. He lastly subjoins the final cause when he says, quote, To declare at this time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus, unquote. And to show, by the way, that this righteousness consists in reconciliation, he says that Christ was, quote, set forth to be a propitiation, unquote. Thus also, in the epistle to the Ephesians, he tells us that we are received into the favor of God by mere mercy, that this is done by the intervention of Christ, that it is apprehended by faith, the end of all being that the glory of the divine goodness may be fully displayed. When we see that all the parts of our salvation thus exist without us, what ground can we have for glorying or confiding in our works? Neither as to the efficient nor the final cause can the most sworn enemies of divine grace raise any controversy with us unless they would abjure the whole of Scripture. In regard to the material or formal cause, they make a gloss, as if they held that our works divide the merit with faith and the righteousness of Christ. But here also Scripture reclaims, simply affirming that Christ is both righteousness and life, and that the blessing of justification is possessed by faith alone. Section 18 when the saints repeatedly confirm and console themselves with the remembrance of their innocence and integrity, and sometimes even abstain not from proclaiming them, it is done in two ways, either because by comparing their good cause with the bad cause of the ungodly, they thence feel secure of victory, not so much from commendation of their own righteousness as from the just and merited condemnation of their adversaries are because, reviewing themselves before God, even without any comparison with others, the purity of their conscience gives them some comfort and security. The former reason will afterwards be considered. See chapter 17, section 14, and chapter 20, section 10. Let us now briefly show, in regard to the latter, how it accords with what we have above said, that we can have no confidence in works before the bar of God, that we cannot glory in any opinion of their worth. The accordance lies here, that when the point considered is the constitution and foundation of salvation, believers, without paying any respect to works, direct their eyes to the goodness of God alone. Nor do they turn to it only in the first instance as to the commencement of blessedness, but rest in it as the completion. Conscience being thus founded, built up, and established, is farther established by the consideration of works, inasmuch as they are proofs of God dwelling and reigning in us. Since then, this confidence in works has no place unless you have previously fixed your whole confidence on the mercy of God, it should not seem contrary to that on which it depends. Wherefore, when we exclude confidence in works, we merely mean that the Christian mind must not turn back to the merit of works as an aid to salvation, but must dwell entirely on the free promise of justification. But we forbid no believer to confirm and support this faith by the signs of the divine favor towards him. For if when we call to mind the gifts which God has bestowed upon us, they are like rays of the divine countenance, by which we are enabled to behold the highest light of his goodness. Much more is this the case with the gift of good works, which shows that we have received the spirit of adoption. Section 19. When believers therefore feel their faith strengthened by a consciousness of integrity, and entertain sentiments of exultation, it is just because the fruits of their calling convince them that the Lord has admitted them to a place among his children. Accordingly, when Solomon says, quote, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, unquote, Proverbs 14, verse 26, And when the saints sometimes beseech the Lord to hear them, because they walked before his face in simplicity and integrity, Genesis 24, verse 10, and 2 Kings 20, verse 3, these expressions apply not to laying the foundation of a firm conscience, but are a force only when taken a posteriori.
for there is nowhere such a fear of God as can give full security, and the saints are always conscious that any integrity which they may possess is mingled with many remains of the flesh. But as the fruits of regeneration furnish them with a proof of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, experiencing God to be a father in a matter of so much moment, they are strengthened in no slight degree to wait for his assistance in all their necessities. Even this they could not do had they not previously perceived that the goodness of God is sealed to them by nothing but the certainty of the promise. Should they begin to estimate it by their good works, nothing will be weaker or more uncertain. Works, when estimated by themselves, no less proving the divine displeasure by their imperfection than his good will by their incipient purity. In short, while proclaiming the mercies of the Lord, they never lose sight of his free favor with all its, quote, breadth and length and depth and height, unquote, testified by Paul, Ephesians 3, verse 18, as if he had said, whithersoever the believer turns, however loftily he climbs, however far and wide his thoughts extend, he must not go farther than the love of Christ, but must be wholly occupied in meditating upon it as including in itself all dimensions. Accordingly, he declares that it, quote, passeth knowledge, unquote, that, quote, to know the love of Christ, unquote, is to, quote, be filled with all the fullness of God, unquote. Ephesians 3, verse 19. In another passage, where he glories that believers are victorious in every contest, he adds the reason, quote, through him that loved us, unquote. Romans 8, verse 37. Section 20. We now see that believers have no such confidence in works as to attribute any merit to them, since they regard them only as divine gifts, in which they recognize his goodness and signs of calling, in which they discern their election. Nor such confidence as to derogate in any respect from the free righteousness of Christ, since on this it depends and without this cannot subsist. The same thing is briefly but elegantly expressed by Augustine when he says, quote, I do not say to the Lord, despise not the works of my hands. I have sought the Lord with my hands, and have not been deceived. But I command not the works of my hands, for I fear that when thou examinest them, thou wilt find more faults than merits. This only I say, this ask, this desire, despise not the works of thy hands. See in me thy work, not mine. If thou seest mine, thou condemnest. If thou seest thine own, thou crownest. Whatever good works I have are of thee." He gives two reasons for not venturing to boast of his works before God. First, that if he has any good works, he does not see in them anything of his own. And secondly, that these works are overwhelmed by a multitude of sins. Whence it is that the conscience derives from them more fear and alarm than security. Therefore, the only way in which he desires God to look at any work which he may have done aright is that he may therein see the grace of his calling and perfect the work which he has begun. Section 21 Moreover, when Scripture intimates that the good works of believers are causes why the Lord does them good, we must still understand the meaning so as to hold unshaken what has previously been said, viz., that the efficient cause of our salvation is placed in the love of God the Father, the material cause in the obedience of the Son, the instrumental cause in the illumination of the Spirit, that is, in faith, and the final cause in the praise of the divine goodness. In this, however, there is nothing to prevent the Lord from embracing works as inferior causes, But how so? In this way. Those whom in mercy he has destined for the inheritance of eternal life, he, in his ordinary administration, introduces to the possession of it by means of good works. What precedes in the order of administration is called the cause of what follows. For this reason he sometimes makes eternal life a consequent of works. 
not because it is to be ascribed to them, but because those whom he has elected he justifies, that he may at length glorify. Romans 8, verse 30. He makes the prior grace to be a kind of cause, because it is a kind of step to that which follows. But whenever the true cause is to be assigned, he enjoins us not to take refuge in works, but to keep our thoughts entirely fixed on the mercy of God. Quote, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Unquote. Romans 6, verse 23. Why, as he contrasts life with death, does he not also contrast righteousness with sin? Why, when setting down sin as the cause of death, does he not also set down righteousness as the cause of life? The antithesis, which would otherwise be complete, is somewhat marred by this variation. But the apostle employed the comparison to express the fact that death is due to the deserts of men, but that life was treasured up solely in the mercy of God. In short, by these expressions, the order rather than the cause is noted. The Lord, adding grace to grace, takes occasion from a former to add a subsequent, so that he may omit no means of enriching his servants. Still, in following out his liberality, he would have us always look to free election as its source and beginning. For, although he loves the gifts which he daily bestows upon us, inasmuch as they proceed from that fountain, still our duty is to hold fast by that gratuitous acceptance which alone can support our souls, and so to connect the gifts of the Spirit which he afterwards bestows with their primary cause, as in no degree to detract from it. Chapter 15 the boasted merit of works, subversive both of the glory of God and bestowing righteousness and of the certainty of salvation. There are eight sections. Section 1. The principal point in this subject has been now explained. As justification, if dependent upon works, cannot possibly stand in the sight of God, it must depend solely on the mercy of God and communion with Christ and therefore on faith alone. But let us carefully attend to the point on which the whole subject hinges, lest we get entangled in the common delusion not only of the vulgar, but of the learned. For the moment the question is raised as to the justification by faith or works, they run off to those passages which seem to ascribe some merit to works in the sight of God, just as if justification by works were proved whenever it is proved that works have any value with God. Above, we have clearly shown that justification by works consists only in a perfect and absolute fulfillment of the law, and that, therefore, no man is justified by works unless he has reached the summit of perfection and cannot be convicted of even the smallest transgression. But there is another and a separate question. Though works by no means suffice to justify, do they not merit favor with God? Section 2. First, I must premise with regard to the term merit that he, whoever he was, that first applied it to human works, viewed in reference to the divine tribunal, consulted very ill for the purity of the faith. I willingly abstain from disputes about words, but I could wish that Christian writers had always observed this soberness, that when there was no occasion for it, they had never thought of using terms foreign to the scriptures, terms which might produce much offense, but very little fruit. I ask, what need was there to introduce the word merit, when the value of works might have been fully expressed by another term and without offense? The quantity of offense contained in it the world shows to its great loss. It is certain that, being a high-sounding term, it can only obscure the grace of God and inspire men with pernicious pride. I admit it was used by ancient ecclesiastical writers, and I wish they had not, by the abuse of one term, furnished posterity with a matter of heresy, although in some passages they themselves show that they had no wish to injure the truth. For Augustine says, quote, Let human merits which perished by Adam here be silent, and let the grace of God reign by Jesus Christ, unquote. 
Again, quote, The saints ascribe nothing to their merits. Everything will they ascribe solely to thy mercy, O God. Unquote. Again, quote, And when a man sees that whatever good he has, he has not of himself, but of his God, he sees that everything in him which is praised is not of his own merits, but of the divine mercy. Unquote. You see how he denies man the power of acting aright, and thus lays merit prostrate? Chrysostom says, quote, If any works of ours follow the free calling of God, they are return and debt. But the gifts of God are grace and beneficence and great liberality. Unquote. But to say nothing more of the name, let us attend to the thing. I formerly quoted a passage from Bernard, quote, As it is sufficient for merit not to presume on merit, so to be without merit is sufficient for condemnation. Unquote. He immediately adds an explanation which softens the harshness of the expression when he says, quote, Hence be careful to have merits. When you have them, know that they were given. Hope for fruit from the divine mercy, and you have escaped all the perils of poverty, ingratitude, and presumption. Happy the church, which neither wants merit without presumption, nor presumption without merit, unquote. A little before, he had abundantly shown that he used the words in a sound sense, saying, quote, Why is the church anxious about merits? God has furnished her with a firmer and surer ground of boasting. God cannot deny himself. He will do what he has promised. Thus there is no reason for asking by what merits may we hope for blessings. Especially when you hear, enter quote, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake. Close enter quote. Ezekiel 36 verse 22. It suffices for merit to know that merits suffice not. Unquote. Section 3. What all our works can merit, Scripture shows when it declares that they cannot stand the view of God, because they are full of impurity. It next shows what the perfect observance of the law, if it can anywhere be found, will merit when it enjoins, quote, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do, unquote. Luke 17, verse 10 because we make no free offering to God, but only perform due service by which no favor is deserved. And yet those good works which the Lord has bestowed upon us, he counts ours also and declares that they are not only acceptable to him, but that he will recompense them. It is ours in return to be animated by this great promise, and to keep up our courage that we may not weary in well-doing, but feel duly grateful for the great kindness of God. There cannot be a doubt that everything in our works which deserves praise is owing to divine grace, and that there is not a particle of it which we can properly ascribe to ourselves. If we truly and seriously acknowledge this, not only confidence but every idea of merit vanishes. I say we do not, like the sophists, share the praise of works between God and man, but we keep it entire and unimpaired for the Lord. All we assign to man is that by his impurity he pollutes and contaminates the very works which were good. The most perfect thing which proceeds from man is always polluted by some stain. Should the Lord therefore bring to judgment the best of human works, he would indeed behold his own righteousness in them, but he would also behold man's dishonor and disgrace. Thus good works please God, and are not without fruit to their authors, since, by way of recompense, they obtain more ample blessings from God, not because they so deserve, but because the divine benignity is pleased of itself to set this value upon them. Such, however, is our malignity that, not contented with this liberality on the part of God, which bestows rewards on works that do not at all deserve them, we with profane ambition maintain that that which is entirely due to the divine munificence is paid to the merit of works. Here I appeal to every man's common sense. 
If one who by another's liberality possesses the usufruct of a field rear up a claim to the property of it, does he not, by his ingratitude, deserve to lose the possession formerly granted? In like manner, if a slave, who has been manumitted, conceals his humble condition of freedman, and gives out that he was freeborn, does he not deserve to be reduced to his original slavery? A benefit can only be legitimately enjoyed when we neither arrogate more to ourselves than has been given, nor defraud the author of it of his due praise. Nay, rather when we so conduct ourselves as to make it appear that the benefit conferred still in a manner resides with him who conferred it. But if this is the moderation to be observed towards men, let every one reflect and consider for himself what is due to God. Section 4. I know that the sophists abuse some passages in order to prove that the scriptures use the term merit with reference to God. They quote a passage from Ecclesiasticus. Quote, Mercy will give place to every man according to the merit of his works. Unquote. Ecclesiasticus 16, verse 14. And from the epistle to the Hebrews, quote, To do good and communicate forget not. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Unquote. Hebrews 13, verse 16. I now renounce my right to repudiate the authority of Ecclesiasticus, but I deny that the words of Ecclesiasticus, whoever the writer may have been, are faithfully quoted. The Greek is as follows. Greek words, Pi, Alpha, Sigma, Eta. Epsilon, Lambda, Epsilon, Eta, Mu, Omicron, Sigma, Epsilon, Nu, Eta. Pi, Omicron, Iota, Eta, Sigma, Epsilon, Iota. Tau, Omicron, Pi, Omicron, Nu. Epsilon, Chi, Alpha, Sigma, Tau, Omicron, Zeta. Gamma, Alpha, Xi. Chi, Alpha, Tau, Alpha. Tau, Alpha. Epsilon, Xi, Gamma, Alpha. Alpha, Epsilon, Tau, Omicron, Epsilon. Epsilon, Epsilon, Xi, Eta, Sigma, Epsilon, Iota. Pas, iliomosun, poese, tapan, ikasts, gax, kata, ta, exka, atu, yuxese. Quote, he will make room for all mercy, for each shall find according to his works. Unquote. That this is the genuine reading and has been corrupted in the Latin version is plain, both from the very structure of the sentence and from the previous context. In the epistle to the Hebrews, there is no room for their quibbling on one little word, for in the Greek the apostle simply says that such sacrifices are pleasing and acceptable to God. This alone should amply suffice to quell and beat down the insolence of our pride and prevent us from attaching value to works beyond the rule of Scripture. It is the doctrine of Scripture, moreover, that our good works are constantly covered with numerous stains by which God is justly offended and made angry against us. So far are they from being able to conciliate him and call forth his favor towards us. And yet, because of his indulgence, he does not examine them with the utmost strictness. He accepts them just as if they were most pure, and therefore rewards them, though undeserving, with innumerable blessings, both present and future. For I admit not the distinction laid down by otherwise learned and pious men that good works merit the favors which are conferred upon us in this life, whereas eternal life is the reward of faith only. The recompense of our toils and crown of our contest our Lord almost uniformly places in heaven. On the other hand, to attribute to the merit of works so as to deny it to grace that we are loaded with other gifts from the Lord is contrary to the doctrine of Scripture. For though Christ says, quote, unto every one that hath shall be given, unquote, 
Quote, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Unquote. Matthew 25, verses 29 and 21. He at the same time shows that all additional gifts to believers are of his free benignity. Quote, Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Unquote. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Therefore, every help to salvation bestowed upon believers and blessedness itself are entirely the gift of God, and yet in both the Lord testifies that he takes account of works, since to manifest the greatness of his love toward us, he thus highly honors not ourselves only, but the gifts which he has bestowed upon us. Section 5. Had these points been duly handled and digested in past ages, never could so many tumults and dissensions have arisen. Paul says that in the architecture of Christian doctrine, it is necessary to retain a foundation which he had laid with the Corinthians. Quote, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. What then is our foundation in Christ? Is it that he begins salvation and leaves us to complete it? Is it that he only opened up the way and left us to follow it in our own strength? By no means, but as Paul had a little before declared, it is to acknowledge that he has been given us for righteousness. No man, therefore, is well founded in Christ, who has not entire righteousness in him, since the apostle says not that he was sent to assist us in procuring, but was himself to be our righteousness. Thus it is said that God, quote, hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, unquote, not according to our merit, but, quote, according to the good pleasure of his will, unquote that in him, quote, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, unquote. That peace has been made, quote, through the blood of his cross, unquote. That we are reconciled by his blood. That, placed under his protection, we are delivered from the danger of finally perishing. That thus engrafted into him, we are made partakers of eternal life and hope for admission into the kingdom of God. Nor is this all. Being admitted to participation in him, though we are still foolish, he is our wisdom. Though we are still sinners, he is our righteousness. Though we are unclean, he is our purity. Though we are weak, unarmed, and exposed to Satan, yet ours is the power which has been given him in heaven and in earth to bruise Satan under our feet and burst the gates of hell. Matthew 28, verse 18. Though we still bear about with us a body of death, he is our life. In short, all things of his are ours. We have all things in him, he nothing in us. On this foundation, I say, we must be built, if we would grow up into a holy temple in the Lord. Section 6. For a long time the world has been taught very differently. A kind of good works called moral has been found out by which men are rendered agreeable to God before they are engrafted into Christ, as if Scripture spoke falsely when it says, quote, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life, unquote. 1 John 5, verse 12. How can they produce the materials of life if they are dead? Is there no meaning in its being said that, quote, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, unquote? Romans 14, verse 23, or can good fruit be produced from a bad tree? What have these most pestilential sophists left to Christ on which to exert his virtue? They say that he merited for us the first grace, that is, the occasion of meriting, and that it is our part not to let slip the occasion thus offered. Oh, the daring effrontery of impiety! Who would have thought that men professing the name of Christ would thus strip him of his power and all but trample him underfoot? 
The testimony uniformly borne to him in Scripture is that whoso believeth in him is justified. The doctrine of these men is that the only benefit which proceeds from him is to open up a way for each to justify himself. I wish they could get a taste of what is meant by these passages. Quote, he that hath the Son hath life. Unquote. Quote, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. Unquote. Quote, is passed from death unto life. Unquote. Whoso believeth in him, quote, is passed from death unto life, unquote. Quote, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, unquote. Quote, he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, unquote. God, quote, hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, unquote. Quote, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, unquote. 1 John 5, verse 12, John 5, verse 24, Romans 3, verse 24, 1 John 3, verse 24, Ephesians 2, verse 6, and Colossians 1, verse 13. There are similar passages without number. Their meaning is not that by faith in Christ an opportunity is given us of procuring justification or acquiring salvation, but that both are given us. Hence, so soon as you are engrafted into Christ by faith, you are made a son of God, an heir of heaven, a partaker of righteousness, a possessor of life, and, the better to manifest the false tenets of these men, you have not obtained an opportunity of meriting, but all the merits of Christ, since they are communicated to you. Section 7. In this way, the schools of Sorbonne, the parents of all heresies, have deprived us of justification by faith, which lies at the root of all godliness. They confess, indeed, in word, that men are justified by formed faith, but they afterwards explain this to mean that of faith they have good works, which avail to justification, so that they almost seem to use the term faith in mockery, because they were unable, without incurring great obloquy, to pass it in silence, seeing it is so often repeated by Scripture. And yet, not contented with this, they, by the praise of good works, transfer to man what they steal from God and seeing that good works give little ground for exultation, and are not even properly called merits, if they are regarded as the fruits of divine grace, they derive them from the power of free will. In other words, extract oil out of stone. They deny not that the principal cause is in grace, but they contend that there is no exclusion of free will through which all merit comes. This is the doctrine not only of the later sophists, but of Lombard their Pythagoras, who in comparison of them may be called sound and sober. It was surely strange blindness, while he had Augustine so often in his mouth, not to see how cautiously he guarded against ascribing a single particle of praise to man because of good works. Above, when treating of free will, we quoted some passages from him to this effect, and similar passages frequently occur in his writings, as when he forbids us ever to boast of our merits, because they themselves also are the gifts of God, and when he says that all our merits are only of grace, are not provided by our sufficiency, but are entirely the production of grace, etc. It is less strange that Lombard was blind to the light of Scripture, in which it is obvious that he had not been a very successful student. Still, there cannot be a stronger declaration against him and his disciples than the words of the Apostle, who, after interdicting all Christians from glorying, subjoins the reason why glorying is unlawful. Quote, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Unquote. Ephesians 2, verse 10. 
Seeing then that no good proceeds from us unless insofar as we are regenerated, and our regeneration is without exception wholly of God, there is no ground for claiming to ourselves one iota in good works. Lastly, while these men constantly inculcate good works, they at the same time train the conscience in such a way as to prevent it from venturing to confide that works will render God favorable and propitious. We, on the contrary, without any mention of merit, give singular comfort to believers when we teach them that in their works they please and doubtless are accepted of God. Nay, here we even insist that no man shall attempt or enter upon any work without faith, that is, unless he previously have a firm conviction that it will please God. Section 8. Wherefore, let us never on any account allow ourselves to be drawn away one nail's breadth from that only foundation. After it is laid, wise architects build upon it rightly and in order. For whether there is need of doctrine or exhortation, they remind us that, quote, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil, unquote. That, quote, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, unquote that, quote, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, unquote, that the elect of God are vessels of mercy, appointed, quote, to honor, unquote, purged, quote, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work, unquote. The whole is expressed at once when Christ thus describes his disciples, quote, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, unquote. 1 John 3, verse 8, 1 Peter 4, verse 3, 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 and 21, and Luke 9, verse 23. He who has denied himself has cut off the root of all evil, so as no longer to seek his own. He who has taken up his cross has prepared himself for all meekness and endurance. The example of Christ includes this and all offices of piety and holiness. He obeyed his Father even unto death. His whole life was spent in doing the works of God. His whole soul was intent on the glory of his Father. He laid down his life for the brethren. He did good to his enemies and prayed for them. And when there is need of comfort, it is admirably afforded in these words, quote, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, unquote. Quote, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Unquote. By means of, quote, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, unquote, the Father having predestinated us, quote, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, unquote. Hence it is that, quote, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, unquote. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, Philippians 3, verse 10, and Romans 8, verses 29 and 39. Nay, rather all things will work together for our good. See how it is that we do not justify men before God by works, but say that all who are of God are regenerated and made new creatures, so that they pass from the kingdom of sin into the kingdom of righteousness. In this way they make their calling sure, and like trees are judged by their fruits. Chapter 16, Refutation of the Calumnies by which it is attempted to throw odium on this doctrine. There are four sections. Section 1. 
Our last sentence may refute the impudent calumny of certain ungodly men, who charge us first with destroying good works and leading men away from the study of them when we say that men are not justified and do not merit salvation by works, and secondly with making the means of justification too easy when we say that it consists in the free remission of sins and thus alluring men to sin to which they are already too much inclined. These calumnies, I say, are sufficiently refuted by that one sentence. However, I will briefly reply to both. The allegation is that justification by faith destroys good works. I will not describe what kind of zealots for good works the persons are who thus charge us. We leave them as much liberty to bring the charge as they take license to taint the whole world with the pollution of their lives. They pretend to lament that when faith is so highly extolled, works are deprived of their proper place. But what if they are rather ennobled and established? We dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works, nor of a justification which can exist without them. The only difference is that while we acknowledge that faith and works are necessarily connected, we, however, place justification in faith, not in works. How this is done is easily explained if we turn to Christ only, to whom our faith is directed and from whom it derives all its power. Why, then, are we justified by faith? Because by faith we apprehend the righteousness of Christ, which alone reconciles us to God. This faith, however, you cannot apprehend without at the same time apprehending sanctification. For Christ, quote, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, unquote. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Christ, therefore, justifies no man without also sanctifying him. These blessings are conjoined by a perpetual and inseparable tie. Those whom he enlightens by his wisdom, he redeems. Whom he redeems, he justifies. And whom he justifies, he sanctifies. But as the question relates only to justification and sanctification, to them let us confine ourselves. Though we distinguish between them, they are both inseparably comprehended in Christ. Will you then obtain justification in Christ? You must previously possess Christ. But you cannot possess him without being made a partaker of his sanctification, for Christ cannot be divided. Since the Lord, therefore, does not grant us the enjoyment of these blessings without bestowing himself, he bestows both at once, but never the one without the other. Thus it appears how true it is that we are justified not without, and yet not by works, since in the participation of Christ, by which we are justified, is contained not less sanctification than justification. Section 2. It is also most untrue that men's minds are withdrawn from the desire of well-doing when we deprive them of the idea of merit. Here, by the way, the reader must be told that those men absurdly infer merit from reward, as I will afterwards more clearly explain. They thus infer, because ignorant of the principle that God gives no less a display of his liberality when he assigns reward to works than when he bestows the faculty of well-doing. This topic it will be better to defer to its own place. At present, let it be sufficient merely to advert to the weakness of their objection. This may be done in two ways. For, first, they are altogether in error when they say that, unless a hope of reward is held forth, no regard will be had to the right conduct of life. For if all that men do when they serve God is to look to the reward and hire out or sell their labor to him, little is gained. He desires to be freely worshipped, freely loved. I say he approves the worshipper who, even if all hope of reward were cut off, would cease not to worship him. 
Moreover, when men are to be urged, there cannot be a stronger stimulus than that derived from the end of our redemption and calling, such as the word of God employs when it says, such as the word of God employs when it says that it were the height of impiety and ingratitude not to, quote, love him who first loved us, unquote, that by, quote, the blood of Christ, unquote, our conscience is purged, quote, from dead works to serve the living God, unquote that it were impious sacrilege in anyone to count, quote, the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, unquote, that we have been, quote, delivered out of the hands of our enemies, unquote, that we, quote, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, unquote, that being, quote, made free from sin, unquote, we, quote, become the servants of righteousness, unquote, Quote, that our old man is crucified with him, unquote, in order that we might rise to newness of life. Again, quote, if ye then be risen with Christ as becomes his members, seek those things which are above, unquote, living as pilgrims in the world and aspiring to heaven where our treasure is. Quote, the grace of God hath appeared to all men, bringing salvation, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Unquote. Quote, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Unquote. Quote, know ye not that ye are the temples of the Holy Spirit? Unquote which it were impious to profane. Quote, ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as the children of light. Unquote. Quote, God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Unquote. Quote, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain, unquote, from all illicit desires. Ours is a, quote, holy calling, unquote, and we respond not to it except by purity of life. Quote, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Unquote. Can there be a stronger argument in exciting us to charity than of John? Quote, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Unquote. Quote, in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Unquote. Similar is the argument of Paul. Quote, know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Unquote. Quote, for as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Unquote. Can there be a stronger incentive to holiness than when we are told by John, quote, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Unquote. And by Paul, quote, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Unquote or when we hear our Savior hold forth himself as an example to us that we should follow his steps. The Bible references are 1 John 4, verses 10 and 19, Hebrews 9, verse 14, and Hebrews 10, verse 29, Luke 1, verses 74 and 75, Romans 6, verse 18, Colossians 3, verse 1, Titus 2, verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Ephesians 2, verse 21, and Ephesians 5, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and 7, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, Romans 6, verse 18, 1 John 4, verse 10, 1 John 3, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 and 17, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, 1 John 3, verse 3, 
2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 and John 15 verse 10. Section 3. I have given these few passages merely as a specimen, for were I to go over them all, I should form a large volume. All the apostles abound in exhortations, admonitions, and rebukes for the purpose of training the man of God to every good work, and that without any mention of merit. Nay, rather their chief exhortations are founded on the fact that without any merit of ours, our salvation depends entirely on the mercy of God. Thus Paul, who enduring a whole epistle had maintained that there was no hope of life for us save in the righteousness of Christ, when he comes to exhortation, beseeches us by the mercy which God has bestowed upon us. Romans 12, verse 1. And indeed this one reason ought to have been sufficient that God may be glorified in us. But if any are not so ardently desirous to promote the glory of God, still the remembrance of his kindness is most sufficient to incite them to do good. But those men, because by introducing the idea of merit, they perhaps extract some forced and servile obedience of the law, falsely allege that as we do not adopt the same course, we have no means of exhorting to good works. As if God were well pleased with such services when he declares that he loves a cheerful giver and forbids anything to be given him grudgingly or of necessity. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 I say not that I would reject that or omit any kind of exhortation which Scripture employs, its object being not to leave any method of animating us untried. For it states that the recompense which God will render to every one is according to his deeds. But first I deny that that is the only, or in many instances, the principal motive. And secondly I admit not that it is the motive with which we are to begin. Moreover, I maintain that it gives not the least countenance to those merits which these men are always preaching. This will afterwards be seen. Lastly, there is no use in this recompense, unless we have previously embraced the doctrine that we are justified solely by the merits of Christ as apprehended by faith, and not by any merit of works. Because the study of piety can be fitly prosecuted only by those by whom this doctrine has been previously imbibed. This is beautifully intimated by the psalmist when he thus addresses God, quote, There is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared, unquote. Psalm 130, verse 4. For he shows that the worship of God cannot exist without acknowledging his mercy on which it is founded and established. This is specially deserving of notice as showing us not only that the beginning of the due worship of God is confidence in his mercy, but that the fear of God, which papists will have to be meritorious, cannot be entitled to the name of merit for this reason that it is founded on the pardon and remission of sins. Section 4. But the most futile calumny of all is that men are invited to sin when we affirm that the pardon in which we hold that justification consists is gratuitous. Our doctrine is that justification is a thing of such value that it cannot be put into the balance with any good quality of ours, and therefore could never be obtained unless it were gratuitous. Moreover, that it is gratuitous to us, but not also to Christ, who paid so dearly for it, namely his own most sacred blood, out of which there was no price of sufficient value to pay what was due to the justice of God. When men are thus taught, they are reminded that it is owing to no merit of theirs that the shedding of that most sacred blood is not repeated every time they sin. Moreover, we say that our pollution is so great that it can never be washed away save in the fountain of his pure blood. Must not those who are thus addressed conceive a greater horror of sin than if it were said to be wiped off by a sprinkling of good works? If they have any reverence for God, how can they, after being once purified, avoid shuddering at the thought of again wallowing in the mire, and as much as in them lies troubling and polluting the purity of this fountain? 
Quote, I have washed my feet, unquote, says the believing soul in the Song of Solomon, verse 3. Quote, How shall I defile them? Unquote. It is now plain which of the two makes the forgiveness of sins of less value and derogates from the dignity of justification. They pretend that God is appeased by their frivolous satisfactions, in other words, by mere dross. We maintain that the guilt of sin is too heinous to be so frivolously expiated, that the offense is too grave to be forgiven to such valueless satisfactions, and therefore that forgiveness is the prerogative of Christ's blood alone. They say that righteousness, wherever it is defective, is renewed and repaired by works of satisfaction. We think it too precious to be balanced by any compensation of works, and, therefore, in order to restore it, recourse must be had solely to the mercy of God. For the other points relating to the forgiveness of sins, see the following chapter. Chapter 17. The Promises of the Law and the Gospel Reconciled There are fifteen sections. Section 1. Let us now consider the other arguments which Satan, by his satellites, invents to destroy or impair the doctrine of justification by faith. I think we have already put it out of the power of our calumniators to treat us as if we were the enemies of good works, justification being denied to works, not in order that no good works may be done, or that those which are done may be denied to be good, but only that we may not trust our glory in them or ascribe salvation to them. Our only confidence and boasting, our only anchor of salvation is that Christ the Son of God is ours, and that we are in Him sons of God and heirs of the heavenly kingdom, being called, not by our worth, but the kindness of God to the hope of eternal blessedness. But since, as has been said, they assail us with other engines, let us now proceed to demolish them also. First, they recur to the legal promises which the Lord proclaimed to the observers of the law, and they ask us whether we hold them to be null or effectual. Since it were absurd and ridiculous to say they are null, they take it for granted that they have some efficacy. Hence, they infer that we are not justified by faith only. But the Lord thus speaks, quote, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if ye hearken to these judgments, and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers, and he will love thee, and bless thee, and multiply thee. Unquote. Deuteronomy 7, verses 12 and 13. Again, quote, If ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers for ever and ever. Unquote. Jeremiah 7, verses 5-7. through 7. It were to no purpose to quote a thousand similar passages, which, as they are not different in meaning, are to be explained in the same principle. In substance, Moses declares that in the law is set down, quote, a blessing and a curse, unquote, life and death, Deuteronomy 11, verse 26. And hence they argue either that that blessing has become inactive and unfruitful, or that justification is not by faith only. We have already shown that if we cleave to the law, we are devoid of every blessing and have nothing but the curse denounced on all transgressors. The Lord does not promise anything except to the perfect observers of the law, and none such are anywhere to be found. The result, therefore, is that the whole human race is convicted by the law and exposed to the wrath and curse of God. To be saved from this, they must escape from the power of the law and be, as it were, brought out of bondage and to freedom. 
Not that the carnal freedom which indisposes us for the observance of the law tends to licentiousness, and allows our passions to wanton unrestrained with loosened reins, but that spiritual freedom which consoles and raises up the alarmed and smitten conscience, proclaiming its freedom from the curse and condemnation under which it was formerly held bound. This freedom from subjection to the law, this manumission, if I may so express it, we obtain when by faith we apprehend the mercy of God in Christ, and are thereby assured of the pardon of sins with a consciousness of which the law stung and tortured us. Section 2. For this reason the promises offered in the law would all be null and ineffectual, did not God in his goodness send the gospel to our aid, since the condition on which they depend, and under which only they are to be performed, viz. the fulfillment of the law, will never be accomplished. Still, however, the aid which the Lord gives consists not in leaving part of justification to be obtained by works, and in supplying part out of his indulgence, but in giving us Christ as in himself alone the fulfillment of righteousness. For the apostle, after premising that he and the other Jews, aware that, quote, a man is not justified by the works of the law, unquote, had, quote, believed in Jesus Christ, unquote, adds as the reason, not that they might be assisted to make up the sum of righteousness by faith in Christ, but that they, quote, might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, unquote. Galatians 2, verse 16. If believers withdraw from the law of faith, that in the latter they may find the justification which they see is not in the former, they certainly disclaim justification by the law. Therefore, whoso will, let him amplify the rewards which are said to await the observer of the law, provided he at the same time understand that, owing to our depravity, we derive no benefit from them until we have obtained another righteousness by faith. Thus David, after making mention of the reward which the Lord has prepared for his servants, Psalm 25, almost throughout, immediately descends to an acknowledgment of sins by which the reward is made void. In Psalm 19 also he loudly extols the benefits of the law, but immediately exclaims, quote, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults, unquote. Psalm 19, verse 12. This passage perfectly accords with the former, when after saying, quote, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies, unquote, he adds, quote, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great, unquote. Psalm 25, verses 10 and 11. Thus, too, we ought not to acknowledge that the favor of God is offered to us in the law, provided by our works we can deserve it, but that it never actually reaches us through any such desert. Section 3. What then? Were the promises given that they might vanish away without fruit? I lately declared that this is not my opinion. I say, indeed, that their efficacy does not extend to us so long as they have respect to the merit of works, and therefore that, considered in themselves, they are in some sense abolished. Hence the Apostle shows that the celebrated promise, quote, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, unquote. Leviticus 18, verse 5, and Ezekiel 20, verse 10, will, if we stop at it, be of no avail, and will profit us not a whit more than if it were not given, being inaccessible even to the holiest servants of God, who are all far from fulfilling the law, being encompassed with many infirmities. But when the gospel promises are substituted, promises which announce the free pardon of sins, the result is not only that our persons are accepted of God, but his favor also is shown to our works, and that not only in respect that the Lord is pleased with them, but also because he visits them with the blessings which were due by agreement to the observance of his law. I admit, therefore, that the works of the faithful are rewarded with the promises which God gave in his law to the cultivators of righteousness and holiness.
but in this reward we should always attend to the cause which procures favor to works. This cause then appears to be threefold. First, God, turning his eye away from the works of his servants which merit reproach more than praise, embraces them in Christ, and by the intervention of faith alone reconciles them to himself without the aid of works. Secondly, the works not being estimated by their own worth, he, by his fatherly kindness and indulgence, honors so far as to give them some degree of value. Thirdly, he extends his pardon to them, not imputing the imperfection by which they are all polluted, and would deserve to be regarded as vices rather than virtues. Hence it appears how much sophists were deluded in thinking they admirably escaped all absurdities when they said that works are able to merit salvation, not from their intrinsic worth, but according to agreement the Lord having, in his liberality, set his high value upon them. But meanwhile they observed not how far the works which they insisted on regarding as meritorious must be from fulfilling the condition of the promises, were they not preceded by a justification founded on faith alone and on forgiveness of sins, a forgiveness necessary to cleanse even good works from their stains. Accordingly, of the three causes of divine liberality to which it is owing that good works are accepted, they attended only to one. The other two, though the principal causes, they suppressed. Section 4. They quote the saying of Peter as given by Luke in the Acts, quote, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him, unquote. Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. And hence they infer, as a thing which seems to them beyond a doubt, that if man by right conduct procures the favor of God, his obtaining salvation is not entirely the gift of God. Nay, that when God in his mercy assists the sinner, he is inclined to mercy by works. There is no way of reconciling the passages of Scripture unless you observe that man's acceptance with God is twofold. As man is by nature, God finds nothing in him which can incline him to mercy except merely his wretchedness. If it is clear, then, that man, when God first interposes for him, is naked and destitute of all good, and, on the other hand, loaded and filled with all kinds of evil, for what quality, pray, shall we say that he is worthy of the heavenly kingdom? Where God thus clearly displays free mercy, have done with that empty imagination of merit. Another passage in the same book, these, where Cornelius hears from the lips of an angel, quote, Thy prayer and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God, unquote, Acts 10, verse 4, is miserably rested to prove that man is prepared by the study of good works to receive the favor of God. Cornelius, being endued with true wisdom, in other words, with the fear of God, must have been enlightened by the spirit of wisdom, and, being an observer of righteousness, must have been sanctified by the same spirit. Righteousness being, as the Apostle testifies, one of the most certain fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 5. Therefore, all those qualities by which he is said to have pleased God, he owed to divine grace, so far was he from preparing himself by his own strength to receive it. Indeed, not a syllable of Scripture can be produced, which does not accord with the doctrine that the only reason why God receives man into his favor is because he sees that he is in every respect lost when left to himself lost if he does not display his mercy in delivering him. We now see that in thus accepting, God looks not to the righteousness of the individual, but merely manifests the divine goodness towards miserable sinners, who are altogether undeserving of this great mercy. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. 
many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.